And I thought it fit in well with this lesson on Jesus, who is also unassuming. Go over to Mark chapter, well actually go to Mark chapter 1, because we're going to be through Mark. Little bits and pieces of Mark, and even outside of Mark. But Jesus himself was an unusual person, wasn't he? Unusual completely. He stood out above everybody else. There was no way that you could mistake him for a run-of-the-mill person. He was different, and people recognized that he was completely different. And Mark, in the very beginning of Mark, what does he want you to think Jesus is? Somebody tell me. From Mark chapter 1, starting... Excuse me. Mark chapter 1, starting in very very first verse. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. What does Mark want you to believe he is? Son of God. He doesn't mince any words, though, either. He just says, beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, boom, the Son of God. He's, he's a fast writer. We've talked about Mark and his, his fast gospel, and that this would appeal to probably the Roman audience especially. And even in that, go over to Mark chapter 15. Not only does he start off with the assertion that Jesus, this guy that I'm going to tell you about, is the Son of God, in Mark chapter 15, in verse 39, at the end of Jesus' life here on earth, at least, <clears throat> as he's breathing his last, Mark throws in this quote or this statement from the centurion. He's standing right, right in front of him. He saw the way he breathed his last and said, truly this man was the Son of God, or truly this man was a Son of God. He recognized... This centurion recognized something different about this guy dying on this cross. Or something different about that. <clears throat> and Mark is saying from the very beginning, Jesus, the Son of God. And he throws in this for the Roman audience. Hey, look here, even the centurion, part of your audience or part of your world, he recognizes something very special about Jesus. Mark wanted to show everyone in his letter that Jesus was the Son of God. But what else did Mark want to show about Jesus? You remember when we talked about, you know, why these four different gospels, four different accounts of the same gospel were written, and that Mark kind of addresses something in particular about Jesus? You remember what we, well, at least what I said, maybe not what, what you were thinking, but if you tell me what I'm thinking, then I'll say you're right. That's how it works, at least for right now. Do you remember? Anybody remember? No? Man, did a really good job of teaching that then, didn't I? <laughs> okay. It shows him as a what? Mark shows him as a servant. As a servant. When you go through the Gospel of Mark, you see Jesus being a servant over and over and over again. And Mark kind of encapsulizes and, and captures this, this servanthood of Jesus. This is, he, he's the Son of God in the very first verse, but what does Mark say? The, the Son of God came to serve. He came to serve and not be served. He came to be a servant to all. And in doing that, I think Mark gives us this perfect model of the greatest servant of all. Now this guy could be assuming. After all, who is he? He's the Son of God. He could be assuming. He is the Son of God. And the Gospel of John says that that he came and he tabernacled, he dwelt among the people, the Creator himself. And if anybody's got a right to be assuming... This guy, Jesus Christ, has the right to be assuming. And yet he comes and he is the greatest servant of all. He's the most unassuming person on the face of the earth. And that's what Mark shows in his gospel. He says, this is the lifestyle that God wants. 
He doesn't want you to live like you're entitled. He doesn't want you to live like you're a victim. He wants you to live like you're a servant. And he shows us that through Jesus Christ himself. Jesus, remember last week we talked about Jesus and what did he, what kind of groups did he run with mostly? Sinners, the dregs, the kind that the, the, the Pharisees might see and say, I don't think I'd be hanging out with that crowd necessarily. They kind of drag you down in the social status. He didn't have any problem with associating with those people. He didn't have any problem going to those people. He didn't have any problem picking some men that were not exactly the cream of the crop either to be his disciples. Fisherman, tax collector. Why does he pick these guys? Because he's not necessarily looking for the pharisaical man. He's looking for a person who could be a servant. He's looking for somebody who could be what he is going to show them they could be. And if we want to hang out with Jesus, we have to be that kind of person. Remember what we said last week about this new life, this new day? It's going to make demands on us. This is all from last week, that new day that, that God was bringing, that Jesus was bringing. It's going to make a new demand on us. It's going to say this new life equals not my life, but it's Jesus' life. We're not falling back into the comfortable. We're actually going out and we're, we're expanding. Because it's not comfortable to serve and be a servant. It is more comfortable for me, actually, to be served. I, I enjoy it more. I know I enjoy serving sometimes, too, but on a regular basis, if I had my choice... I'm, I'm a selfish guy. I'll, I'll, I'll let you serve me. Sure. And as human beings, oftentimes we are a little selfish. I'll let you serve me. I may not want to get out and serve you all the time. I may not want to do that. But Jesus says, no, this is a new life. It's going to make new demands on you. And because of that, you're going to have to act a new way. And that's what Mark's gospel is saying. Now go back to Mark chapter 1. I want you to see how Jesus... He begins this, this ministry, and Mark is going to show him as the Son of God, but as a servant, the ultimate servant. But there is something interesting that Jesus does with this gospel in Mark and the way Mark describes this gospel. Mark chapter 1, verse 24 and 25. <clears throat> After he's sent this spirit out, this unclean spirit, or he's going to send the Spirit out. He says to him, verse 24, What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Mm -hmm. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. Now skip down to verse 34. He's doing all of this work. They're marveling in verse 27 about who is this guy? Who's this, this teaching, this one with authority? He's, he's commanding unclean spirits to come out. Verse 34, And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons, and it was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Look at verse 44. Now after he's cleansed a leper, verse 44, And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, offer for your... For your cleansing, what Moses commanded for a testimony to them. Now jump over to chapter 5 and look at verse 43. <clears throat> Jesus goes. He's going to raise this girl. He raises her up and in verse 43. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. Don't tell anybody that I raised your daughter. 
Don't tell anybody about these things. Don't let the demons speak because they know who I am. Go show yourself to the priest. Get on with your life. Now go over to verse or chapter uh, 4 and look at verse 39. <clears throat> this Jesus who is saying and doing a lot of amazing things and is, and is pretty much saying, be quiet about it. Don't tell. Be quiet about it. Verse 39, as he and his disciples are in this boat, and as his disciples think they're going to they're gonna die, this fierce gale in verse 37, the waves breaking over the boat, and they say in verse 38, don't you care that we're about to die? In verse 39, being aroused, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. The wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So they're astonished at who this guy is, this, this Jesus who has the capability of casting out demons, has the capability of raising little girls, has the capability of commanding the wind and the sea, but still is probably not wanting much exposure. Go over to chapter 6. They're still wondering who this guy is. They're still figuring him out. Verse 41 <clears throat> he's going to feed some people. After he tells them to give them something to eat, they have all come to hear him preach. They've all come and they need to eat. Back in verse 30 is where that starts. He comes ashore, the great multitude in verse 34. He feels compassion for them because he knows they need a shepherd. It's quite late. They're going to eat. Verse 41, he took five loaves and two fish. Looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food broke the loaves, and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them, and he divided up the two fish among them all. They ate and were satisfied. They picked up 12 full baskets of broken pieces and also ate of the fish. And also of the fish, you mean. And there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. Again, the disciples, they get into the boat. They're still not sure what is going on. They still don't probably understand who this Jesus is. When you get to chapter 8, in verse 30... After all of this stuff that Jesus has been doing, after all of the, these things, these amazing things, <clears throat> again in chapter 8, he says, tell no one about him. Tell no one about him. Jesus is saying, go back to verse 27. He went along with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, who do people say that I am? John the Baptist, so they say Elijah, one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? And Peter uh, speaks up and says, thou art the Christ. And Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Keep it quiet again. Keep it quiet. Jump over to chapter 9, verses 7 through 9. <clears throat> they go up to this high mountain. Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John. And he becomes transfigured up there. Peter says, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tables, one for you, one for Moses and Elijah, but in verse 5. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified, which would be pretty terrifying to see that happening probably in front of you. But imagine what they've already seen too. Verse 7, then a cloud formed overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. They were coming down from the mountain. He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man should rise from the dead. 
Tell no one about this. Tell no one about this. Over and over again in Mark, especially the Gospel of Mark, you see Jesus saying, be quiet. Don't tell anybody about this. Even though he's doing some amazing things, and, and quite frankly, you, you would assume that that's going to get out because who raises a daughter from death and nobody hears about it? It's, you're going to hear about it. It's going to get out. But Jesus is saying, keep this stuff calm. Keep it calm. Keep it quiet. And I've often wondered... And I probably don't understand the full purpose of Jesus' doing this, but I've wondered, too, if, if part of that is because of how Jesus' ministry is progressing and what he is ultimately trying to show us, which is what I think Mark is ultimately showing us in this unassuming nature of the creator of all. It's one who has come to show God and not bring glory to himself. What do you guys think about that? Jesus should have glory, though, shouldn't he? He's worthy of glory. He's the Son of God. And yet he comes and he says, I came to serve, not be served. I'm always pointing to the Father. He gives me the words that I need to speak. I, I say them, but the Father is the one who needs the glory. I am the one who is directing you to the Father. You know, this timeline that, that Jesus is on, this life is that Jesus is on, there's no other reason, I think, that Mark uh, points this out, except for to bolster that, that servant attitude of Jesus Christ. That he is the ultimate servant. He highlights the fact that Jesus is the ultimate servant of all. He's not self-seeking. He's dedicated to God's mission. Look at chapter 10 of Mark. Again, this is what we've already said. But it points out again that in Jesus' teaching here, it's about God. It's all about God. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He just told them, you know, if you wish to be leaders, you've got to be servants. Not so among you, in verse 43, whoever wishes to become great shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. And Jesus is the ultimate example of that standing right in front of them, he is this unassuming Savior. He's not interested in what I would be interested in. I might let that go to my head if I had the power to do the things that Jesus had to do. I might let that go to my head if I've got people coming to me all the time and looking for what I have to say and, and all these crowds following me and pressing in on me and wanting all my time. That might go to my head. That doesn't go to Jesus' head at all. He says, I'm here to do the Father's will. I'm here to do what God sent him to do, which is exactly what leads us all up to that taking up the cross and following him, following the leader, essentially. Mark chapter 8 there, verse 34. Take up your cross and follow me. It's not going to be an easy road, but you need to take up your cross and follow me. In fact, Jesus comes to turn everything that, that man has, at least in, in ideas of leadership and even servanthood, up on, on its head. He's not doing it the way that, that man would do it. He's not doing it the way the Pharisees or the Sadducees would want to do it. He's not doing it the way the disciples would like him to do it. He's not doing it the way the crowds would like him to do it. He's not even doing it the way that the, the demons want him to do it. He's telling them to be quiet. He's telling his disciples to be quiet. He's telling the Pharisees, you, this is how it's done. He's doing it completely different than everybody else would do. And Go over to Mark chapter 8 again. 
when you hear about people being in it for themselves, <clears throat> I'm sure you have plenty of examples in your own life about being in it for yourself and probably knowing about people who are in it for themselves. Jesus is the perfect example of someone who is in it for everyone else but himself. Verse 34, he summoned the multitude with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to what? Save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it. That is turning things on its head. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. You lose your life to save it. That's backwards. To lose your life to save it. It reminds me, too, of how God wants even the church to act and his elders in the church to act. When you look at 1 Peter 5, Peter admonishes his fellow elders to do what? You guys remember what he says to them? Let's go over there really quickly. Because he's talking about people who are supposed to be leaders in the church. And he says, I'm going to admonish you as a fellow elder to, to live and lead this way. Which sounds a lot like the way Jesus said, you know, before about leadership, not lording it over people. Verse 3, not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to your flock. Mm -hmm. Examples. So the, even in the eldership, even in, it, it goes beyond the eldership to every single Christian. But here in the eldership, he's saying, if you're an elder, if you're, if you're a shepherd here, you need to act as a servant. You need to be a servant. You don't lord it over. You don't do it like the Gentiles. You don't lord it over like the Gentiles do. You actually become a servant to God's people. That's what a shepherd is. He is a servant. He's not a hired hand. He's someone who will die for the sheep. And that Jesus in Mark and Matthew, Luke, and John, are all of those two, is giving us a prime example of what a real shepherd looks like. I'm gonna, I've got a piece of paper in the back. For those of you coming back tonight, I've got a piece of paper that I want you to take home and look at. You probably won't get it all done tonight but we, or today, but we can go through it tonight and get the rest of it done or at least some of it done. We can talk about it. And on that sheet, I've got several things that I'd like you to do. One of them I want to take you through a brief little example of today right now. I want you to go to chapter 1, verses 40 through 43 of Mark. Part of this, this worksheet that I'm going to send home with you, talking about being unassuming, is going to ask you sort of questions about Jesus and his character, and then it's going to ask us, how does that relate to the Christian's character? And what do I need to do to be an unassuming person? Verses 40 through 43 of chapter 1, And a leper came to him, beseeching him, and following, him, following on his knees before him, and saying to him, If you are willing, make me clean. You can make me clean. Moved with compassion, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed and he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. He said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, go show yourself to the priests, offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a testimony to them. Okay, so I want you to, as an exercise here and what I want you to do when you go home, tell me 
What are some, some things here in these verses that make Jesus an unassuming person? What jumps out at you as Jesus being unassuming in this section here? Actions or attitudes of Jesus? How about, how about the, I, I see Jesus as being unassuming. Not, not, he's not above reaching out and touching a leper. He's not above just actually physically reaching out and touching him, which would make you ceremonially, ceremonially unclean according to the law. But I'm often wondering if Jesus, as soon as he touches him, the leprosy is gone. There's no need to be ceremonially unclean. But Jesus himself is willing to reach out there and physically touch this person who has been cut off from physical touch. Just that, in, in my opinion, makes him an unassuming person. He's, he's not saying, I'm better than you right now. I'm not, just stay away from me and I'll, I'll, I'll heal you. I'm willing to reach out. I'm willing to get, get to you, even though you're, you're hurting. You're ceremonially, uh, ceremonially unclean. You're, you're physically ill. Any other attitudes or actions that you see in there? He understood rejection. There you go. That's a good one too. He understood being rejected. He was already rejected. The, the Savior of all came and he was rejected. And he's looking at a man who is being shunned from society right now because he is leper, or a leper. That's a good one too. Anybody else? Attitude or action that jumps out at you? Okay. Let me give you another one of the, of the four that I give you on the sheet. Go to chapter 9. This again is where they're up on the mountain. And he says, listen to him, verse 9, or excuse me, verse 8. And at, all, at once they looked around, saw no one with them anymore except Jesus. They were coming down from the mountain. You know, he gives them orders not to talk until the Son of Man should rise from the dead. In verse 10, and they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead might mean. Anything unassuming in action? Or attitude about Jesus here? Okay. Tells him that he's going to die. Okay. Well, I'm wondering too in that in that statement in in the in what they understand and what he's telling them. He's saying, "Keep this to yourself." It, it's Obviously, for his benefit and for God's plan to keep this to himself right now, this needs to be between us. Even, even that sometimes, I think, is in, in my attitude as a human being, might be unassuming. I am not here for my own personal glory. I'm here for God's purpose. And God's purpose is to keep this quiet for this time so that God's ultimate purpose can be accomplished. Not to toot my own horn that I'm standing here with these men, that I'm this... But I want you to do it God's way. I want you to do it the way it should be done. I'm not here for my own glory. I'm here for God's glory. And in my opinion, that, that's part of the unassuming nature of Jesus. He's there for God's purpose, period. He's not there for his own glory. He's not there for what it gets him. Anybody else with an attitude or action that, that you see there as unassuming? I realize that's, that's putting you all on the spot right then and there. So... That's, that's, that's part, of the, part of one of the things I want you to look at when, I, when you take that sheet home with you, if you do, if you want it. 
That's, that's one of the questions I want you to answer is what's unassuming about this? And then based on the what's unassuming about that, well, what does that mean for my Christian character? If Jesus is like this, then what does that mean for me? What am I supposed to be if, if I am this person? How do, how do I be unassuming like Jesus in these cases? So I want you to take that home with you if, you, if you're going to come back tonight. If you're not coming back tonight, you can take it home anyway. Work on it because you could work on it throughout the week if you like. But here is the conclusion of this letter here, or this, this sermon here. Here is what I want you to take home with you about these things. I'm going to put all these up here because we're going to get to them eventually. Um, if you want to go to one first, 1 Samuel 16 is one we'll be at first. But here's some unassuming attitudes or assuming attitudes. And here's how it affects me as a Christian. This lifestyle of Jesus is not a lifestyle of, of my own gain and my own purpose. It's about being about God's purpose. Would you agree with that? It's about being about Christ's purpose, His purpose, and not mine. My life is no more mine. It's His now, and I do what God asks me to do. It's that 834. I'm going to take up my cross. I'm going to follow Him. And I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to crucify myself daily, like Paul says. And everybody who follows Jesus has to walk that same path. We are all on that same self-denial path. Which means, like Mark shows here, you shun the headlines... Jesus says, I don't want the headlines yet because it's not time. I don't want you, you broadcasting this. I'm not here to be this, this awesome preacher. I'm here to be the Savior of all, and this is how it needs to be done. You, don't, you look for service opportunities. Jesus was always, and in fact, the service opportunities came to Jesus over and over again. And you look to help others. Jesus was always looking to help others. And what that really points to me or points out to me is that agape love that a Christian should have. That I'm always doing what? With agape love, I am always doing what? Say that again. What's best for me? I like that. What's best for me? Yeah, what's best for everybody else, right? It's not about me. It's about you. And for you, it's about me. It's about, it's, it's, I'm going to do what's best for you. No matter what. I don't, I don't have to love you the, the phileo love. I don't have to love you brotherly. Brotherly, I don't have to have that kind of love. But I have to have agape love. I have to love you enough to do what's right. Because that's right. Because that's what God wants. In the church, we look for ways to serve others and each other all the time. we got behind-the-scenes people. we got behind-the-scenes people all over the place here that are doing things that we never see. But they're doing it because they love. They're doing it because that's how you serve. That's what they do. And the disciples of Jesus will be where he was, right? We'll be with the outcasts. We'll be with the dregs of, dregs of society. We'll be with those people because we remember where we came from. And where did we come from? Where did you and I come from? Unless you're too proud to admit it. Sinners, definitely. What else? What, where else have you come from? And, and I think it's, it's Paul sums it up in 1 Corinthians where we come from. If you agree with this, say amen. If you don't, just be quiet. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 1.26 For consider your calling, brethren. There are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish 
things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Would you agree with that? That's where I come from. I don't know about you, but that's where I come from. Not many wise, not many noble. He has he's brought me out of the darkness into his marvelous light. I don't deserve it. But I'm, I, I remember where I come from. And I'm not ashamed to associate with those who are there. Because I know where I came from. I know where I could be. Jesus' eyes, who were focused on the fathers, blazed the trail for all of his people. In Hebrews chapter 12, you see that blazing of the trail. You see him with his focus on God and our focus on God. And look at this, this focus here. Verse 1 through 3 of Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What do we do? We fix our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. And verse 4, even more, you have not even resisted to the point of shedding blood and striving against sin. I know I have not. I haven't reached that point. I, I haven't shed my blood striving against sin. But Christ has. And his disciples will be looking at him just as he was looking at the Father. He gave us the example on earth to look to the Father. And we look to him in our calling, in our, our trail blazing as we go behind him. We have our eyes fixed on him. By being unassuming, we don't want that self-glory. We are transformed. We're lifted up. We're exalted. Like James 4.10 says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Go over to 1 Samuel 16 if you're not already there. Out of those four, I know it's probably hard to pick which one. I think I told you, didn't I? 1 Samuel 16. Here's some character traits of assuming or unassuming people. And I, I want to take it and say, okay, this is what we can do. This is how I can be an unassuming person. We see Jesus. We see his example. He's this immensely ethical person. This immensely good person. But it wasn't an off-putting, he wasn't an off-putting person. How many times I have been in my past a goody-goody. I'm high and mighty because I think I'm right. And all that does is put people off. All that does is get under everybody else's skin. Because I'm right and you're not right. Well, Jesus was right all the time. And yet he could associate with people who weren't. And I need to learn how to be right, but not so right that I'm off-putting. I need to be I need to be right, but I don't need to be holier than thou. I need to be right, but I don't need to be, well, I'm the only one going to heaven, you're not. Sorry. That's not the right attitude to have. That's not even the attitude Jesus had. When I want to see a Jesus who loved the world but looked Absolutely nothing like the world. 
And that's what I should look like. I love the world, but I look absolutely nothing like the world. I think there's something immensely beautiful in, that, in the nature of Jesus because you look at him and people are attracted to him because he genuinely loved those who were deeply hurting. John chapter 4. You see that woman who is deeply hurting and you see his love. It doesn't put him off and it doesn't put her off. In fact, it brings them together. And that's the kind of unassuming attitude I want to have as a Christian that will bring people together and will show them the real Christ in me. First, uh, First Samuel 16. Uh, let's see. It's in verse 7. But here I'm going to back up just a little because... God is, God is saying to Samuel that he's going to reject Saul as king. And he's sending Samuel down there. And he's saying, or he's sending, he's sending Samuel out to look for the other king. So he goes to Jesse there in verse 3. He's going to show him what he has to do. Samuel goes to the Lord, does what the Lord says. And there in verse 4, he came to Bethlehem. Uh, and the elders among the city came trembling to meet him and asked him if he comes in peace. He comes in peace. So he's, verse 6, it came about when he entered that he looked at Elab, El, Eliab. And thought, surely the Lord has anointed, anointed. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. He's going there to pick the next king, and God has said that I want you to go pick the next king from this guy, this Jesse. And he sees this guy, and he says, "This is the next king. Why? Because he looks like a king. Yeah, he's a big guy. He looks like a king. He's got the stature. He's got the maybe the the girth, the the, the presence of a king." He's got the abs of a king. Okay, Jarrett. He's got the abs of a king. All right. Whatever it is, he looks like a king to Samuel. Hmm? He's got it. Whatever it is, he's got it. It's a Samuel. But God says what? Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And he prays a couple more sons in front of him, and he says, oh, well, maybe it's this one, maybe it's this one, maybe it's this one. And God says, no, no, no. And then he gets to the one that, if you're looking through man's eyes, you wouldn't have chosen. Mm-hmm. All right, now go to 1 Samuel 15. Back to the guy who was rejected, Saul. Here's part of the reason he's rejected. Here's what happens to a man who's assuming. This is me Assuming. First Samuel 15, let's see, I'm going to go down to verse 10, because he's told to go out and he's told to kill Agag, the king of the Amalekites, kill everything, get rid of everything, and he doesn't do it, he doesn't follow the Lord's command, they save the best things, they save the king, and in verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I made Saul king, for he's turned his back from following me. And you know, that, that, just that sentence alone is scary. You never want to put God in a position where he regrets giving you something or putting you somewhere. I never want to be in that position where God says, well, I regret letting Robert go preach at Orchard. I regret that. If I, if I put myself in that position, then I'm in big trouble. And that's where Saul is. He's in big trouble. Because God is now regretting what he's done. He's turned his back from following me, and he's not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. 
Verse 12, here is this assuming man who God now regrets putting in command. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, oh, excuse me, verse 12, sorry. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Wow. I'm assuming that I need a monument to myself because I've done such a great job here. Well... There's no wonder why God regrets making you king. Now, go back to first, or go over to First Corinthians, excuse me. We'll touch on these before we end because I want you to, to take a couple things home with you. But First Corinthians 9. Here again is the attitude of an unassuming person. Paul saying, I'm no better off than you. And I'll, I'll be what you need me to be to get to you. Verse 19, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. Mm -hmm. And to the Jews, I became a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who were under law is under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who were under the law. To those who are without law is without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker in it. Mm -hmm. I'm no better off, no worse than you. Mm -hmm. I'm right there with you. I'll meet you where you are. I'm doing this for the gospel, for God. I'm not violating his law, and I'm not violating the gospel, but I am going to meet you where you are, because I've been where you are. As I know what it's like to be without God, I want to be there and show you the gospel. Matthew chapter 5. Last example here. In, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> one verse in there. When I'm talking about unassuming attitudes and an unassuming lifestyle. And the unassuming lifestyle of Jesus. I think this one. As he says. Blessed are these people. This kind of shows me a, a little bit about Jesus too. Verse 5 is where I'm going to go. Blessed are the gentle, or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the gentle, the meek. Not the, the milk toast, but the meek. And that word there being that word that, that means power under control. Meaning that Jesus had all the power in the world, but he was meek and humble. Humble enough to go to the cross. This is an unassuming person who is meek. Power under control. But we use that power rightly. We're not out there for vainglory in ourselves. This is that lifestyle of taking up your cross. And here's the way the world looks at it, or at least I've even looked at it sometimes. Take up your cross and follow me, right? No, wait, that sounds too hard. Just go with the flow. Strike that and reverse it, right? Take up your cross and follow me. No, that's going to be actually kind of hard, Jesus. Well, don't worry about it then. No. The lifestyle is that, taking up your cross and following him. And that's what that, those four things are, at least part of it. When, when you look outside rather than inside, when you look at, at things through God's vision, like in 1 Samuel 16, God tries to tell Samuel, look at it through my eyes. Don't look at it through man's eyes. Don't assume that you know who should be king here. I'm looking at the heart of the matter. 
Don't be assuming here. Be unassuming. In First Samuel 17, or 15, excuse me, 15. The assuming nature of a man who sets a monument up for himself because I've done the right thing. I've done a good job here. And I'm putting God in a position saying, I regret making you king. I don't ever want to be that assuming person at all. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, talking about, I'm, 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 I've been there. I've been there. I, you need to have your road to Damascus moment just like I had mine. I've been there. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be a Jew. I'm going to be a Gentile. I'm going to be whatever it takes to get you to the heart of the gospel. I'm not going to assume that I am better than you because I stand here where I am now. I'm not going to assume that. I'm going to be unassuming in my nature here. And first, or excuse me, Matthew 5. The fact that Jesus says the meek are going to inherit the earth. The meek, the humble, the power under control. That's Jesus himself. Power under control. That's how I should be. This unassuming nature of Christ needs to extend into each one of his followers and be unassuming in our lives. For each of us, that will look different. I encourage you to to grab a piece of paper there and work through that this week and see the unassuming nature of Christ in Mark and then ask yourself the question, where and when does that fit in my life? What are you going to do this week that shows that unassuming nature to the world? That unassuming nature that is ready to share the gospel of Christ, that is ready to share the, na- the news that you can be born again. You can have those sins washed away. You can rise to that new life and walk with Him. But you have to be unassuming, just like Christ Himself was. Do that this week. Get a piece of paper as you go out today and be an unassuming Christian for the unassuming Christ this week as we stand and as we sing.